Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. He lays on his dry earth, dreaming of a heart of moving water, and I watch my uncle, and know that there, in the bare plains of the Kachinga, where they survive not just through the grace of water. This program features the work of 2011 writer Larissa Min. Curator Susan Rich sat down with her in the studio. And I wonder if you consider your work to be experimental in any way. I actually do consider my work, for better or worse, <laughs> to be experimental. I think I, in some ways, maybe I'm a product of my history. And so I think that one, chewing languages, it in and of itself has made me approach how I write in a different way because in some ways the sounds that are most natural to me, the cadences and the rhythms are from another tongue. And also in some ways, because I moved from one location to another, my sense of perspective is more polyphonic in the sense that I can see from the perspective of someone living in this culture and in another. And so when I write, I want to present not just one point of view, if you will. I think that I try or I want to present a more polyphonic view of the world. Why memoir? Well, yes. (laughs) Why memoir? I strain or fight against the label itself because Yes, I'm using autobiographical material. I'm trying to, in some ways, bring the story of my family's migration and to tell that. But in another level, I'm also trying to talk about the story of the world, the story of global migration and how, in some ways, those influences which lie outside our individual everyday existence have such a huge impact in shaping our paths. And so in some ways, it's the story of my family in another way, it's the story of the world and therefore the story of all of us, how we are all end up being where we are now. Now we'll hear a selection from Larissa's live reading. Thank you, everyone. It is said by persons who might know better, that you are. Nobility, or rather, you might have been, were you in a parallel universe, unmoved by geopolitics and bloodletting, the family that would scatter itself away. Unpopulate the nation. The boats are tiny escape pods. In them, they contain a smattering of social strata. In your mouth, mother, it is said, cooking rice down to a thick broth, the thick gruel, the milk of. Kindness, you think. You are weaned in. The version of you which precedes you, now she, it is said, drinks rice milk. Not quite the kind found in nicer neighborhoods of expanding appropriations of soy byproducts, but kindness, you think. She, your elder sister, it is said, drinks rice milk through the voyage. This almost mythical construct, can one imagine? 55 days of passage in the sailing push of oceans, the travel, a gestation period, the in-between waiting space of birth. And yet, they land in the port of Hio, escaped nobility and a baby awake and lips bursting with rice, milk of kindness. 
and your own mouth has never known but the lap of dairy, the stolen fruits of pregnancy. You who have never been intolerant of milk, you think. And so this paragraph gave birth to my current project, Breaking English, which is an account of my family's migration from Korea to Brazil and then the U.S. as a way to really explore and understand um, this larger phenomena of global migration, of displacement, and of making meaning of memory. I would like to share with you a few excerpts that relate a little bit of my family, of my parents, the beginning of their voyage, and then what I've been trying to understand in these past few months, which is a sense of the end of my uncle's voyage. So I will start, and I would like to thank you all for coming, and thank you all for listening. My father met my mother by the steps of the American Presbyterian Church at the end of the Korean Civil War, years after two American generals sat together and, after studying the map for a minute or so, drew a line at the 38th parallel with a red pen and went off to lunch. <laughs> My mother read German literature, had a calligraphy brush with precocious verve, and was the top student out of 300 girls at the American Missionary High School. My father had a Clark Gable face, came from a noble family, and was perpetually late to school. <laughs> and so began their lopsided courtship, my father limping after my mother through the bombed streets of Seoul, their university campus, to affluent homes where my mother taught children how to pass their exams. Countless one-way exchanges were passed via schoolmates' hands, my father pledging undying love and pleading for just one word of response, anything resembling hope, kindness. Twice he vowed to kill himself if she didn't go out with him. <laughs> and both times my mother sent word, just do it, she painted. She painted in impeccable black strokes on scrap paper. But a few days later, miraculously risen from the dead, my father would resume his stream of missives. <coughs> this went on for seven years. <laughs> then, one torrential afternoon, my mother swung past the gate of one of her students' homes and made her way down a street bathed in the milk of monsoon pour. Soaked as she reached the corner, she scanned for a place in which to hide. But this was depressed post-war career where girls got to eat eggs perhaps a few times a year as a treat. So she hid her face in her hands and breathed. The flailing rain flattened her clothes, spilling off her shoulder blades. And then there wasn't rain. She uncovered her eyes and looked up to see an open umbrella suspended above her and connected to it was my father's outstretched arm. <laughs> and so it was that my parents were engaged and a few years later, on a cool November morning in 1965, they embarked with my father's younger brother on a cargo ship bound for the ports of Hong Kong, Singapore, Penang, Mauritius, Mozambique, then on to South Africa. At each stop on the journey, a few families unloosed themselves like tiny spores onto foreign shore, resembling fruits shaken prematurely from the tree. 
My parents would stroll about docks of ports vast with the machinery of things unloading, silks, iron, grains, sugar, all. They would share an ice cream. After rounding the Cape of Good Hope, past the blunt tip of Africa, days of cleaving through swells towards the Tropic of Capricorn, tying oneself to posts and what might hold through the tossing storms, breakers slamming broadside and setting containers of eastern trade adrift. Mornings, deck surfaces newly anointed would glimmer like pale milk, drying pointless paintings of sea salt. And throughout, the constant boiling of rice into milk for my sister, pulled across endless oceans by the arms of other Koreans, for in the ocean, if you hold and stay still, the baby is rocked. Eyes turned west for a sight of land. When their ship, the Tijikalenka, finally slid into the Bay of Rio de Janeiro, Men and women leaned on rails to take in the mountains, the sugar loaf, and high above the stone arms of Christ peering down slopes and blue waters. But it was a cloudy day. And when they disembarked with 50 other seasick Korean families after a 55-day journey, they carried in their arms my sister, a bag of clothes, a miniature set of French perfumes, boats of brilliant silk, my mother's calligraphy paintings, and her set of calligraphy brushes. And how could they release four of their own to a foreign land? They could let them go and relinquish the possessions of. My uncle is a young man. In the legend, it is he whose imaginings of something other post my father, post my mother, post my siblings, and myself. This traveling boy a coat barely hiding a set of dream jets. His heart is placed onto the cuffs of his hands, large, swollen bypass. He's followed its earnest pumping beneath the thinness of him, carved a devoted course after a girl and her family bound for voyage towards a land where, accounts promised, trees leaned with fruit swollen with sugar, and where if one looked so very carefully, one would find, every so often, the glint of diamonds in the streets. Swollen, his heart must have floated up to the base of his throat, and there, drummed with such insistence, he had no choice but follow its fervent course, through family goodbyes, up a causeway, onto a new continent. But what must his heart have done when he realized that a girl and her family would change their minds before departure? and remained behind in the land of their fathers, watching from terra firma as the ship set off. Did he relinquish the possessions of? My uncle follows his thread of yearning, and with him my parents follow, for how else would they unloose one of their own to a land other, a land void of what they can together hold? But a year later, uncle is lost, gone. And what is the story? Here is one version. Uncle is found one day over 3,000 kilometers away from them, sitting on a curb holding onto his head as if a precarious balance exists between the cup of his hands and the motions of a lunatic. Somewhere in the very far northern interior, the Sertão, he's taken to a hospital. Under the whimsy of care, he relinquishes possession. His body passes, quickly acquiesces in some ward, some place north. It must have been a warm day. He must have lain on the dusty berths of the wild Kachinga desert, 
far and lost to them, my parents unraveling spools of Asian silk before the eyes of farmers, getting up in the morning to feed pigs with sacks of USAID corn, finding enterprising selling peanuts in markets. Holding on to my sister, they do not sense it, do not sense the loss. And I know nothing of him other than this. Kachinga, the Tupi word for white forest, one-tenth of the continent of the fifth largest country in the world. It has a dry and wet season. In the dry, the earth bakes to 140 degrees. Foliage peels to block water's escape, while the roots of trees shoot to the surface, punching through to extend fingers suppliant to sky. Here, whole skeletons lie pristine by the road, while children collect bleached vertebrae of dogs, horses, and cows to nurse them as pets beneath a drowning sun. And yet, in this land of violent blooms and droughts, families plant and ply tall stalks of sugar, wading through dry and wet to cut and twist cane into a vice for the sweetness of a milk boiled into sugar cakes, the once white gold from a shorn white forest. And so, in a land once cleared by slaves, born from the dreams of empire and sugar plantations, and now plied by millions of peasants surviving endless droughts, I place my uncle. Lulled by sugar promises, I dream of a young man sitting on the dusty earth, his head in his hands as he tries to measure the faltering tempo of a failing heart. I imagine his all-too-human muscle the size of a fist emptying, tapping a gurgle against the vast earth, cracking as he wonders if it will keep long enough to take him back, to see, to others with whom he belongs. Will it beat a counter pattern, waves lapping against a hull hollowed from coconut trunks, canceling the rocking currents, so along the traveled tongues of ancient pelagic fish, he will float in stillness across the Atlantic, past the Cape of Good Hope, the spine of Africa, the waters of the Indian Ocean stained with the blood of spices, the trade route of pirates, past marshlands of the Ganges Delta, gleaming with each flood through the mouths of island channels of the Malay coast. He will lay on the hollowed coconut tree as his body draws taut with sun, salt sparkle turning signal mirrors, presented up to arcs of peregrine seabirds as they float on air currents funneling east. Weather masses carrying my uncle home, back to an unblemished heart. As he lays on that berth with hands empty and open to sky, does he dream of the lap of mother? the hand of father, or is it instead the face of a girl, unknowing that in her he sees armies of men alight on a voyage of a thousand nautical miles past all the continents of our revolving world? Will he relinquish the possession of? He lays on his dry earth, dreaming of a heart of moving water, and I watch my uncle and know that there, in the bare plains of the Kachinga, where they survived not just through the grace of water. There must have been others to hold my uncle aloft the burning land, to rock him in the lap of kindness, to bear his heart suspended in their sweet milk as he relinquished the possession of and passed away. Kindness. And in another place, my grandmother stands in her courtyard as she has so many mornings, 
with the smell of rice boiling in the pot for breakfast, trees just beginning to bud, but now studying the face of an envelope covered in traces from a Roman Empire, a script born across territories of the European continent to be repeated through my mother's steady hand into the signs of another world. She holds onto the envelope the tiny moment before knowledge, the space where she knows nothing other than this. How could they let them go and relinquish the possession of? Before ripping apart the skin of trees into the journey of a thousand miles and hearing the hearts past spill like a clean whistle across an ocean, one still with a sun dreaming. Us and ours. My mother, father, uncle, and sister, before a sepia coconut tree on the beach, smile at the camera. They stand, my father with his hair like a movie star, my uncle askew in shirt sleeves, my mother holding my sister, and in her hand, lotus leaves wrought on plain metal curl around a microscopic diamond. In the bright line they stand, in a land where no bombs have ever fallen, hoping to fashion something new, yet resembling home. Sound Pages was produced by Jack Straw Productions as part of the Jack Straw Writers Program. The 2011 curator of this program is Susan Rich. Music performed by Randall Bays and recorded as part of the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. Producer is Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are Mo Preventure and C.J. Lazenby. Narrator is Alyssa Keene. And executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, Washington State Arts Commission, National Endowment for the Arts, the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.